Section 28 of Stories of the First American Animals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or if you would like to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories of the First American Animals by George Langford. Section 28. Mammoth the Last of the Mastodons, Part 5. For several long, weary days, Mammoth tramped up and down through the woods and over the meadows along the west bank of the Wabash, searching for clues that might lead to the herd's discovery. Not for a single moment did he relax, resting at night with ears alert to catch the faintest sound, and on the go all day with a persistence that never faltered. The weather grew gradually colder fall was at hand winter would soon follow and now is the time to journey south but mammoth had no herd to lead south would his companions remember to go there of their own accord surely they would do so from mere force of habit if nothing else the thought gave him much comfort they would go south in fact he was now convinced that they had already gone south he even scolded himself because he had not before given them credit for that much common sense. They had secured almost a week's start and must now be far ahead of him. All seemed clear to Mammoth once he had thought the matter out, so he hurried southward only to meet with disappointment the whole way, for, search as he would, not a single mastodon sign was to be found. He had misjudged. The herd had not preceded him after all otherwise they would have left some trail for him to smell or see. Although taken aback, he now encouraged himself with fresh hopes. I was only partly right, he argued. The herd did not turn south as soon as I expected. Something must have delayed them. I must be patient and wait, for they will soon be here. He halted before a large pond where he found food and drink. Here he waited, Day after day passed, and still no sign of his missing companions. Although weary and heartsick, he refused to give up all hope. Whenever a chill voice whispered in his ear, the herd has gone north. You will never see them again. He would silence it with, no south, they will come in good time. Various animals passing by halted to investigate the great tusked giant standing by the shore of the pond. In his loneliness, Mammoth would have turned to them for companionship and consolation, but they mistook the true meaning of his overtures and hurried fearfully away. These were migrants from the north, fleeing before the approaching winter to seek food and warmth in a more temperate climate. Not one of them dared stand before the mastodon who, had they but known it, felt enmity toward none and was merely seeking the companionship he sorely craved. Finally, a flock of ducks flying down from the north alighted upon the waters of the pond. Mammoth saw them and became interested. They were a flock of birds, but any gathering of sociable creatures was interesting, even though it served only to remind him of his own enforced solitude. The flock numbered several dozen, all mallards, and their leader was a big strapping drake. The latter attracted Mammoth's particular attention. Being the leader of a herd, or rather a flock, the drake felt his responsibilities. 
he had chosen the pond as a good place to round up his followers before resuming the flight south mamet heard him say not here yet those ducks make me so angry they are always late quack quack his companions responded in chorus the stragglers began to drop in one by one finally five or six more were added to the flock the big drake was about to give the signal to depart when another duck descended with a splash that sent the water flying all over him squack quack he sputtered in a great rage then his ire softened as the newcomer sidled up to him and gave him a coy admiring glance he raised his head proudly and fluffed his feathers with studied carelessness as though he had no idea how fine and gaudy they were always the last one you are enough to try a coot's patience he strove to speak harshly but with those soulful eyes taking note of his gorgeous array it was so easy to forgive and forget now follow me closely every one of you he commanded and please remember that there is to be no stopping anywhere until i give the word now we are all here are you ready he was preparing to leap from the water when a loud snort made him pause the sound came from the neighboring bank there stood a huge motionless figure whose color was much in harmony with the surrounding scenery the big mallard was not in the habit of paying much attention to motionless colorless objects or he would have seen it before however it was so large no one could help noticing it now that it had made a noise Sss, he hissed how did the big thing happen here i must look into this the rest of you stay where you are while i investigate these remarks as well as the ones previously made amused mehmet greatly he remained motionless watching the big drake swimming toward him the bird came on haltingly paddling from side to side as though timid about taking too bold and straight a course he was consumed with curiosity to learn more of the huge animal that had no color and did not move but who made a noise as though knowing he was tantalizing the other mehmet kept perfectly still and uttered no more sounds meanwhile the drake tacked and jibed all the time drawing nearer he was like a needle being attracted to a magnet when about ten yards separated him from the motionless giant he observed the latter's white tusks and stopped paddling what are you doing there he quacked mehmet's eyes twinkled all animals had previously fled at the sight of him none had shown the slightest interest in his welfare but here was a plain everyday duck demanding an accounting of his actions just as saucy as you please i was watching you and your friends he chuckled they seem to give you no end of trouble how would you like to have me help you lead your flock unfortunately the drake could not see a joke his skull was not split four ways at the top his bump of humor never had a chance to grow lead my flock queer idea that he remarked soberly why only a duck could do it i'm sure you couldn't you have no wings of course not mammet replied no mastodon has but you ought to see me swim swim well now really the duck appeared much perplexed he remained silent for several moments staring at the water before him 
No, it wouldn't do at all, he finally blurted out. Besides, I don't need any help. Why don't you get a flock of your own, beasts like yourself? Mammoth's head dropped. There are none, he replied gloomily. I am alone without a friend in the world. No friends, asked the drake in surprise. Now that is unfortunate. I would die if I had to fly about the country alone. You may be sure I would not stand around like you doing nothing. If you need friends, why don't you stir yourself and find some? There are no mastodons here, Mammoth answered wearily. I have hunted for them high and low, but none are to be found. None here, perhaps, said the drake, but there are some where I came from. I know because I saw them. You saw them? Mammoth's heart bounded within him. Where? he asked eagerly. The drake pointed his bill northward. There, he quacked. I passed over them only yesterday. There were not many of them, but all were huge creatures, just like you. Mammoth trembled with joy. The drake's words had suddenly raised him from the depths of despair to a seventh heaven of delight. Only yesterday, he squealed. Then they must be very near me. He beamed. He flapped his ears excitedly. The drake was about to speak, but Mammoth's brain was in a ferment, and he rambled on like one talking to himself. I felt that they were near me, and that was all I had to brighten my loneliness. It seems so very long ago that we became separated. It is a dreadful thing, this being separated from one's friends. The drake nodded his head emphatically. He said nothing, but it was evident by his manner that he fully agreed. The mire came between us, the mastodon continued. I was careless and did not see. I should have been leading the herd. I should be leading them now. They are timid animals and need me to watch over and fight for them. But now that you have told me where they may be found, I must go to them at once. Every moment they are in danger, and as for me, I am so lonely I wish I would die. He was turning away when he heard a loud quack, quack behind him. He stopped and looked back. You need not be in such a hurry, snapped the big mallard. You'll be lonely all the rest of your life if you don't listen and be sensible. I am listening, Mammoth replied. But be quick, for I must go. You have a long, long journey before you, the drake began. But you saw my herd only yesterday. A short journey for me, but a long one for you, said the big mallard, shaking his head dubiously as he glanced at the mastodon's post-like limbs. I fly faster than the strongest wind. Your speed is that of a turtle compared with mine. Your friends are indeed very far away. Mammoth's heart sank. Then with a mighty effort he recovered himself. No matter, he said determinedly. How long, how far must I go? Until the snowdrifts pile in your path like mountains and the waters harden like stone. If you live through this, you will find yourself in the country of the deer moose beyond the river of the plains. Your friends are there. Having delivered himself of these parting instructions, the drake swam back to his flock and the mastodon turned northward. The cold wind blew in Mammoth's face. He set his teeth grimly. This was no time to be going north, he knew, but the herd was in danger and he must hurry to them. It would be a hard journey, but he must get to them and lead them back to the southern country. He dreaded the return journey more than the one now before him. 
it must be made in the dead of winter could the herd do it they must his brows contracted with determination as he hurried on day after day he plodded his weary way the cold wind blowing in his face grew colder until the steam of his labored breathing gathered upon his trunk and forehead in a mantle of hoar-frost the ground creaked and groaned and the swamp's tussocks became as hard as cobblestones no danger of being mired in frozen soil so the mastodon drove over the bogs and lowlands at a tremendous pace his stops were few brief halts for restless sleep and poor nourishment barely enough to keep him alive and moving it was on on and ever on the fat melted from his body his hide bagged and wrinkled over his big boned frame he ached and hungered he grew morose and vicious beneath his burden of suffering he lost all of his sociable nature he had no quarrel with any one but there was in his look and manner that which warned all to stand aside and give him the right of way for such animals as he passed he had neither frown nor greeting on on he drove against the north wind then came the snow thick driving snow which piled up in great drifts and dragged hard on the mastodon's weary feet his speed slackened waist-deep he floundered desperately through the drifts like a huge snowplow advancing by inches where before he advanced by rods now that winter had spread its cold white mantle over northern illinois many creatures began to feel the hunger pinch it was the season too when all manner of hunting animals roamed the forest searching for deer moose elk and other vegetable eaters that might be attacked to advantage while staggering about helplessly in the snow can the timber wolf a long-legged bristling giant came upon the mastodon's trail yet warm and full of scent raising his head on high he bade the signal calling together the wolf pack of theakiki for the hunt over hill and ravine they came racing full cry howling like fiends once assembled they were off like the wind their broad whiskered feet serving as snowshoes to carry them swiftly over the snow crust mammoth was ploughing his way slowly through the drifts when faint sounds were borne to his ears it was an uninterrupted chorus of howls becoming louder at every moment he stopped and looked behind him a score or more of gaunt shaggy forms were speeding toward him through the woods on they came mouths wide open displaying their cruel teeth and blood-red tongues wolves grunted mammoth scornfully he was thinking of the pack of minster and how he a baby had routed the cowardly lot of them single-handed so he turned his back upon them and resumed his way but the timber wolves of theakiki were of far greater caliber than those of minster or others the mastodon had met with surprise rather than fear held them back at first they saw neither elk nor moose but a huge monster with horns growing from its mouth also it was a veritable mountain of flesh so said their noses therefore a godsend to a score of warped and empty stomachs the fierce brutes crowded closely on mammoth's flanks and rear can strode in the van close to the mastodon's left shoulder he crept nearer and nearer 
The pack watched him closely, awaiting their big leader's spring as the signal to dash in. Mavet jogged on, apparently paying little attention to his unwelcome visitors. But with all his seeming indifference, he kept his eye on Can and bided his time cunningly. The big wolf edged closer. Another moment, and he would have sprung when suddenly the mastodon's trunk shot at him with the swiftness of a python's thrust and seized him by the middle. One agonized howl, and Can vanished beneath the ponderous feet. The next moment he reappeared, whirled aloft a limp and bloody mass, and was flung over Mammoth's back to the pack behind him. The wolves recoiled. The sudden and terrible end of their leader, together with the giant's strength and quickness, was not lost upon them. They set upon the body of the slain wolf and devoured it in short order. But they followed the mastodon no more. Mamet kept on. After several days more of pounding through the drifts, he descended a long, wind-swept slope and stood upon the bank of a broad stream. This must be the river of the plains. He waded and swam through it, breaking up the ice with trunk and tusks, until finally he reached the other side. Although chilled to the bone, and so exhausted he could scarcely stand, he gathered himself together and made a careful survey of the country before him. This was the land of the deer moose. His friends must be somewhere near. The ground in front of him to the west inclined upward and terminated in a ridge several miles long. His spirits soared to the heavens as he marched as fast as he could toward it. He fussed and fumed because it obstructed his view of what must be behind it a herd of mastodons, his herd. The thought urged him on to greater speed. His breath came in gasps. His heart pounded like a hammer, but he would not slacken his pace. Now that his goal was so nearly reached, he forgot to think how very tired he was. His anxiety and loneliness would soon be relieved, and then the hardships he had undergone would be cast aside and forgotten. He wished that he were a bird and could fly over and look behind that ridge which seemed so far off and stood there forever in his way. He heaved and strained, panting with excitement and his exertions, and after what seemed to him an age he reached the crest and gazed eagerly beyond. He saw a broad valley beneath him. One side of it was in part the ridge on which he stood. On the other side was high ground as far as he could see. Snow, snow everywhere. Here and there were small clumps of trees. All was bleak and bare. To Mammoth it seemed a valley of death, for he saw no living animal within it, and, worst of all, no mastodons. Pointing his trunk to windward, he sought that which his eyes could not see. Vainly he searched the valley. No news. The herd was not there. Keen was his disappointment, the reaction overwhelming. His body crumpled up within his bagged and wrinkled hide. He stood upon the ridge, silhouetted against the sky and visible for miles around, an image of despair. And yet an idea came to fill him with renewed hope. Perhaps he had not gone far enough. The herd might have shifted, too. They were not such fools as to stand forever in one place, 
particularly in that valley of death. They must be in the higher forested country beyond it. Mamet recovered his spirits, and, having recovered some of his wind and strength, too, he felt better. He descended into the valley, crossed it, and ascended the other side. Disappointment again. He saw nothing but snow, rolling ground and scattered groups of trees, also an occasional crow and rabbit, but no mastodons. Again he lost hope. He strove to shake off his weariness of heart, body, and brain, but without success. Now that he despaired, his unnourished body rose in rebellion against the iron will that had so long driven him mercilessly on. Mamet was forced to heed. Cold, famished, and exhausted, he crept on to a patch of woods bordering a creek, the O-Sable, and sought refuge among the trees. Night Frost, with his bitter tooth, sought and found the mastodon hidden in the woods. Mamet stood there shivering. He scarcely retained strength enough to stamp his feet and thrash his trunk about to warm himself. Gradually his muscles relaxed, his eyes closed, and he relapsed into deep drowsiness. Slowly the clouds above rolled away, leaving the sky all blue and clear and dotted with myriads of twinkling stars. The moon rose high and full, casting its sun mockery upon the numbed earth. The air was lifeless, not a breath stirred bush or branch. The moon rays penetrated the woods and cast a ghastly glare upon the great tusked feature standing there motionless. They brushed aside the hand of the frost death and smote upon the mastodon's forehead. In his confused moments preceding awakening, Mamet sensed the brilliant glare. He heard a voice calling. He opened his eyes and blinked at the moon, which shone directly in his face. The air was deathly still, a mask to hide its bitterness. He tried to stretch his limbs, but they were as numb as four wooden posts. His feet, too, felt like nothing. They were almost frozen to the ground. Mamet roused himself with a mighty effort and shook off the drowsiness that had so nearly made an end of him. Slowly and painfully he coiled and uncoiled his trunk and stamped his feet until they no longer felt like dead weights. The mist cleared from his brain and then sounded once more the voice of his awaking moments. A mastodon and alive! Mamet looked up with a start. Not ten paces distant stood a long-legged moose-like creature with a deer's face and a wonderful crown of three-palmed antlers. Who are you? he asked. The deer moose. The deer moose? Then I have found you at last, bellowed Mamet in astonishment and great joy. You alone can tell me where my people are. Lead me to them, for soon we must be on our way to the warmer country. You see, I am their leader. It was long ago that we became separated. Now I am here and will guide them to the land of safety. The deer moose was silent for a few moments. He stared at his broad hoofs, as though dreading to meet the other's eager gaze. "'You are too late,' he said finally. "'Too late?' Mamet's heart almost stopped beating. His body was as cold as ice. "'Yes, the mastodons are here, but all are dead. When the leaves withered, they sickened. When the snow came, they died. Not one remains but yourself. You are the last.' The blow staggered Mamet. His limbs shook until he seemed about to fall. 
the blood rushed to his temples his heart raced madly then the tempest within subsided and he shuddered as an icy chill crept over him he stared at the snow the trees the sky but saw nothing the end of everything had come for the herd had perished and now he was alone he said nothing more speech and reason left him he made no effort to move for now there was no place to go the deer moose watched him anxiously mammoth watched the deer moose the latter moved off several steps mammoth followed and stopped when the other stopped daylight came the deer moose sought his breakfast of inner tree bark mammoth did likewise the deer moose marched to the o sable and drank mammoth followed and drank the mastodon repeated every motion of the deer moose clinging desperately to this last straw of companionship like an inseparable shadow all that day it was the same when night came mammoth huddled up close to his new-found friend like a yearling calf seeking its mother's warmth and comfort before long he was sleeping as peacefully as a babe it was midnight when the deer moose heard in his dreams a voice calling him from on high he awoke and gazed at the heavens the north star was blinking and pointing it called it urged so he stole softly away in the morning mammoth awoke and found himself alone the deer moose had disappeared with a scream he plunged into the woods searching frantically for his missing companion vainly he searched his uneasiness increasing to wild excitement as he found no sign the forest resounded with his loud bellows which brought no answer but the mocking echoes of his own voice he became desperate and his deluded dulled mind flashed forth blind furious rage mammoth was alone his was a sociable nature and of his kind none but rogues lived alone a rogue was a mad elephant usually an old disgruntled animal mammoth was not old although he now looked anything but a young bull but with his last shred of companionship torn from him something bid his weary brain kill trample and destroy he listened and heeded and became an avenging rogue a mastodon gone stark raving mad he stormed through the woods like a hurricane charging upon every living thing that crossed his path a group of deer took one look at the onrushing giant and fled in terror before him above his head on an oak branch crouched a panther whining softly in awful fear the o sable wolf pack scattered before the mad fury like leaves blown by the wind a flock of crows flapped away screaming as the maniac battered his way among the trees every denizen of the woods hastened to make himself scarce as mammoth raged and tore seeking ones upon whom to vent his wrath all morning he dashed back and forth only to find the woods finally deserted for it was now known that a rogue mastodon had invaded the country of the o sable and he had best be left alone that afternoon he grew quieter a relapse due to exhaustion and failing health his blind rage subsided into morose dullness he ate nothing drank nothing dark clouds came rolling down from the northeast bringing with them snow flurries and biting wind mammoth crept among the trees bordering o sable creek and endeavored to find shelter from the increasing cold 
Here the wolf pack awaited the big bastodon. A raging rogue was one thing, a sick and dying elephant another. And now, emboldened by winter hunger, they stole softly up to the tusked giant, standing with head bowed low among the trees. Mamet saw not, but his nose gave him sudden warning of the approaching danger. With a loud bellow he backed rapidly away as the red-mouthed furies rushed at him from all sides. The O-Sable was behind him. In he dashed for his last stand. The ice gave way beneath his feet. He halted in the shallow water as the wolves came howling and snarling to the attack, and stood waiting with trunk rolled aloft and tusks pointed forward. Suddenly there flashed through his mind the memory of earlier and better days. He was again the young fighting bull facing the wolf pack of Minster. He screamed a defiant challenge, just as the foremost wolves dashed into the water and leaped upon him. In an instant the creek became an inferno of struggling creatures half concealed beneath showers of bloody foam and spray. Mamet rushed into the midst of his enemies with his last flash of furious strength. With trunk and tusks he struck and jabbed while his huge feet ground one writhing body after another into the creek's rocky bed. His strength was failing fast, but no faster than the courage and number of his foes. One final labored sweep of the great tusks, and the last wolf was either dead or following his flying companions in a mad dash through the woods to escape the mastodon's wrath. The waters of the O-Sable relapsed into their former quiet, and Mammoth stood there amid heaps of broken ice and lifeless furry forms. The fire faded from his eyes, his head drooped, and he swayed upon his shaking limbs like one about to fall. Slowly he waded ashore and staggered up the bank. He was weary unto death, he could scarcely control his muscles, and he was very, very cold. The wind blew harder from the northeast, bending the treetops before it. Mamet crawled through the underbrush and sank to his knees as the storm fast gathering whistled among the branches above him. The snow came driving down, first in scattered flakes, then in a furious cloud, covering everything as with a white mantle. It covered the mastodon until the cold wind no longer chilled him to the bone. With warmth came a feeling of peace and comfort such as he had not experienced for many a day. His brain gradually cleared, and he had visions. He was gazing at a luxuriant landscape, green-covered lowlands bordering a forest, through which wound a peaceful stream, all beneath a bright blue sky. A herd of mastodons was moving about on the lowlands and among the trees. Huge tuskers, cows and many calves, all as plump and happy as anyone could be. The youngsters frolicked with each other, while the grown-ups stopped feeding from time to time to look on. All were so joyous and carefree that it made a picture well worth going far to see. Suddenly a great bull tusker emerged from the group. He was followed by a cow, with a roly-poly calf trotting by her side. Burbo! Hasta! Mamet called out. There was no answer, but the whistling of wind through the treetops and the faint rustling of driving snow. 
all grew dark as mamet sank lower beneath his white winding sheet and drifted peacefully away into the land of sleep that knows no waking end of section 28 end of stories of the first american animals by george langford recording by rita louise 2019 ann arbor michigan